0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 29th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 38. The Lord tells Jeremiah to take the cup of the wine of wrath and make the nations of the earth drink from it help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Brother Apple, thank you for having me. I'm so glad when I'm invited back. It means I haven't caused too much damage yet.
0: God be praised. God be praised. Thank the Lord. Amen. Ah. Pastor Hall, we find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 25 today, about halfway through the book at this point, which is a very lengthy book. Jeremiah has a lot to say. What do we need to know about the context of Jeremiah, the context within his book, as we prepare to look at the second half of chapter 25 today?
1: I mean, Jeremiah, you got to love the beginning of it. God says, I'm going to put these words, my words, in your mouth. You know, this isn't Jeremiah looking on the side with his opinion, man, about how the Israelites are acting, how everyone in Judah and is acting. That's not what's going on here. It's God speaking through him. And you have the notions of captivity. The children of God have, of course, again, abandoned the ways of God. And God sends Jeremiah to proclaim both the law and the gospel the law that says there's reasons for punishment, but also gospel that there's relief for it. So it's beautiful narrative. Like you said, a long book, but filled with a lot of great stuff.
0: Certainly a lot of great stuff today. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a lot of that law maybe not Mm-mm. as much gospel. I do appreciate what you said there about this isn't Jeremiah's opinion that's coming out. This is the word of the Lord. And and on several occasions, and we'll see it in today's text, that it is the word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah. The Lord said to me is how he puts it in, in this text. And I think that's important, particularly in a text like today, where we're going to be talking a lot about the cup of the wrath of the Lord, that Jeremiah is not proclaiming this because he doesn't like the people, because they've been mean to him, and he wants to get back at them. But he is proclaiming this because this is the truth of the Lord's Word that he's been given. And what else is a faithful preacher to do but to speak what God has said?
1: Correct. Well, it's, that's why the lectionary is so beautiful as well for us. It's not your pastor—because that, that would offend if your pastor didn't have a lectionary, and he just got in the pulpit and preached what he felt like that Sunday— you know, he gets up, chooses a text that he thinks people need to hear and just goes off on it or does a, a, a series where he thinks, OK, you know, I really think these people need this. The lectionary humbles the pastor that he does basically what verse 15 is. The God of Israel said this to me in the word of God. <laughs> he says this to me. I'm now handing it over to you. So the offense, it's like with Moses, you, your offense isn't with us. It's with the Lord. We're here handing this over to you, that you may repent and believe, that you may not die in your sin, but to it and live in the forgiveness of it under the mercy of God. That's the point of it all.
0: So Jeremiah is going to preach today. He's going to be given this word from God concerning a cup. And so we're going to be talking a lot about the cup that the Lord gives to Jeremiah. I'm going to read the first couple of verses for us, Pastor Hall. This is Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, sorry, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So there's the the opening couple of verses. That was just the first two verses of our text. The Lord tells Jeremiah, take this cup, it's filled with the wine of wrath, make the nations drink it. Pastor Hall, Mm. take us into the text.
1: Well, I love this, make the nations drink it. Not just the nation, but nations. You know, we always like folking the—I can't talk today—focusing this on Israel, just that. But the reality is this affects all the nations. It affects everybody. Just as the atonement affects the whole world, so does the wrath of God affect the whole world. And Jeremiah is to hand this over to them that they may drink it, that they may consume it and be crazed by it. And this happens. It's, it happens to every single nation. It's Babylon. It's Egypt, Greece, Rome. Every nation, like it says in Romans one eighteen, every person is under the wrath of God. No one escapes from it. Because all are conceived and born corrupted by sin. There's no escape from the wrath of God against you, except Christ. There's nothing you can do to escape this. So you drink it down to the dregs. (laughs) It consumes you. You must be fully poisoned, fully sinful in order to be fully forgiven. You can't justify anything. You can't say, well, there's something that's not there. There's some type of sin that, that isn't sinful anymore. And therefore, I don't have to worry about it. But the church has gotten pretty good at uh it's it's like we're the Simone Bile. How do you say it, Bile? Right? Bile. I think that's right. The, yes, she's a gymnast. Uh, yeah. I do
0: know this popular culture reference.
1: It, there we go. I knew I'd get one one day. Uh, we 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 use words like she does backflips to get around what is sinful and what is not. Um, and it's amazing how we do it instead of just saying, you know what, I am. I've done this. It's my fault. I need to pray the prayer of the tax collector, not the Pharisee, and say, you know what? There is nothing good in me. Every single dot and iota of my existence is depraved. Lord, help me for the wretched man that I am.
0: You talk about doing backflips around certain language. I think the word wrath, which we see several mm-hmm. times in this text, is one of those words that we might try to do backflips to avoid, try to, to speak of something other than God's wrath. But that is the word that Jeremiah uses, and it, it certainly is throughout scriptures, that our sin, our idolatry, earns God's wrath. Why Why do we need to use that strong of language? Why does God use that strong of language? Well, he uses this language... Really, to to comfort us. The reality of God's
1: wrath is it's his alien work. This isn't his nature. God is not by nature the God of wrath. He is the God of mercy. Mercy being that instead of getting the wrath we deserve, we're forgiven. But why are we forgiven? Well, we're not forgiven because we don't have sin. We're forgiven because our sin has been consumed. In Christ, Christ has assumed it as his own and fully dra- drained down to the dregs, drank everything, all the wrath of the Father. is consumed in Christ. So he has taken all the wrath now, all of the anger, all of the, the anger of God against sin. He despises and He hates sin. He doesn't delight in it. That, that's why we die is the consequence of sin. God hates those who abide in sin. He doesn't delight in those who say, I have no need to be forgiven. He doesn't delight in in saying there is nothing that needs satisfaction and atonement. We are separated from God and need the atonement so that the wrath of God is not on us. We don't consume it. Jesus has done it for us on our behalf, in our stead. And wrath is that anger. When when you think about this anger, it's it's like a father. If his daughter is abused by her her let's say her boyfriend or something he has wrath toward that man until it's consumed until it's finished because he loves his daughter god loves you and you have been corrupted by sin and his wrath will not be satisfied until the sin is done with and on the cross it's done with on the cross it's finished so that you just get loved if god the father didn't do anything about our sin then he doesn't love us. The fact that he has wrath even shows us he loves us because that wrath goes on Christ. Not that we take comfort in God's wrath, but we see that he hates sin. He hates death. He hates these things. And he satisfied it himself in the death of his son.
0: So if we lose the language of of God's wrath, if we don't preach that the same way Jeremiah preached it, then what we end up losing is the true comfort of the gospel, and we end up sort of well. I mean, with what the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, we we're preaching preaching peace, peace, but there really <laughs> is no peace. And so we need to hold on to that language, still use that language, and preach about God's wrath, so we can have the full comfort of Christ's gospel. Well, exactly. It, it, your pastor has to speak in the language of eternity.
1: It's so easy, you hear the people will say, give me a sermon that I can apply to my life. Great. I am right now because I'm talking about your eternal life. Luther always saw himself in the context of eternity. And that's who we are in the waters of holy baptism. You have been rescued from the wrath of God that causes eternal death. You've been rescued in the blood of Christ from that. What better news can you hear that then sets you free to live joyfully as a pilgrim here? And on this pilgrim path, you invite others to rejoice in it with you to rejoice that you are forgiven and then grant them that same joy in being forgiven that same delight in being rescued from that wrath of the father. Mm. But so many churches deny this, right? Um, Take Gerhard Ferdi, who is a prominent theologian in the ELCA. He's he's, uh, entered the church triumphant now. And, um, but he he would really write against this understanding that you and I are speaking on concerning God's wrath, that the cross was not about atonement, Jesus making satisfaction for us. The cross was more of a reality of man rejecting God. Well, where does the comfort come then? How am I assured of my salvation that God's not angry with me? Well, don't talk that way. God's not angry with you. Well, <laughs> kind of feels that way. The devil preaches that to me. The world preaches that. The law preaches that. Now, by world, I don't mean culture. I mean the reality of when I make a mistake, the world doesn't let me forget it. This is the where we are. We are under God's wrath unless covered in the righteousness of Christ. The wrath goes somewhere, and it's either Christ or you. And that's what causes the joy and delight. And when, when there isn't joy, and this is the fun part, well, what if I don't have joy in being forgiven? Well, <laughs> Then you need to meditate some more. What are you what are you being released from here? <laughs> it is something that is so terrifying and you're rescued from it. I, I preached a few Sundays ago. I said if we actually got our mind around the reality of being rescued, like it says in the catechism, from the jaws of hell, you're rescued from it. It's like if you were falling off a cliff and someone grabs your hand and they lift you over, you've been rescued from death. That's what's happening every time your pastor forgives you. Every time you mutually console one another as brethren in Christ. Every time you receive the sacrament of the altar. Every time you sing the liturgy. Meditate on the word. This is happening for you. What greater gift can you have?
0: Uh, How does the how does the physical part of this wrath that's being discussed here in Jeremiah twenty-five, the the physical consequences of that wrath, play into it? And I, I think, I mean, as I was listening to what you were saying, I, I was reminded of the way that we confess in Divine Service Setting Three, which is the old mm-hmm. TLH service, where where we we ask God or we, we say that we surely deserve His temporal and eternal punishment. We, <laughs> we know there's there are temporal consequences for our sin. And as Jeremiah is is preaching here and and holding this cup of the wine of God's wrath, the Lord later talks about the sword that's going to be sent among them, that there's actually going to be physical destruction in Judah and Jerusalem, which will come at the hand of the Babylonians. How How does that, how do those temporal consequences, those physical realities we face in this life, how does that play into all the things you're talking about with God's wrath and that being poured out on Christ?
1: Oh, one of my favorite sermons, well, one of my favorite preachers is uh, Reverend Peterson of at Redeemer in Fort Wayne. Great, great preacher. I mean, you can hear his stuff online. You can hear a lot of guys online nowadays, but his stuff is great. Um, and he preached a sermon, this was a good 12, 14 years ago now. And he made the statement that in his house he would rather have a, wee, a Ouija board than a pornography site. And he's making the point, a Ouija board is pretty blatant. You're you're doing this activity to invite the demons into your life. Very eternal feeling, spiritual thing. Whereas pornography, it, it's very much, we, we have a very physical thing. It's a, a physical uh, feeling, a chemical reaction in the body. And the point he's making is that wrath that comes along with viewing that sight, what it does to the body, what it does to the brain. There is a consequence to you when you look at that, that comes because God hates it. He doesn't want you to do it. And he shows you the detriment of it. And you see what path it goes down as you continue feeding that beast, feeding that demon, the world says it's something that's natural there was a guy this was back in the early 20th century named havelock ellis have you ever heard of this guy havelock ellis i i have not he he was a um margaret sanger ended up chatting with him a lot and when she came out with some of her books for basically which ended up becoming planned parenthood and birth control and all this when she went to england when she was uh, gonna be uh imprisoned because of the comstock laws she fled to England for three years while her husband stayed back home. Um, she went there and she hung out with the neo-Malthusians. And but Havelock Ellis was this guy in Britain who was a sexologist, and he made the point that if it, it be, because it's pleasurable, it can't be bad. What's causing problems in society is we resist the physical pleasure. So that was the big thing: is if you give in to this, it's better. It makes things better. It makes marriages better. It makes society better. But look at the last hundred years, has it gotten better? Through the eyes of righteousness and Christ, do we see a society that has a better understanding of the body, has a better better view of marriage, a better view of children? No, I'd say our society is a million times worse as we look at it. And we see the temporal consequences, God's wrath on creation on society because we invite these things in and say this is what right we're we're the theologian of glory that calls a bad thing good and a good thing bad and we see that wrath here i don't know if all those things i just said make sense
0: well maybe if i can try to draw them together or at least what the way that yes I, so the, that's why i love having you you draw my stuff together it's great when we when we see the temporal consequences of our sin which which are very easy to to feel and and when God by his grace lets us recognize that those are in fact temporal consequences of our sin, he invites us into that deeper reality, the further reality, that there's a, a spiritual aspect, that I I deserve not only that, but far much worse, which which is right. that fullness of the cup of God's wrath. Such that when I when I do experience the temporal consequences of my sin. And now speaking about, you know, our lives today, not necessarily that I somehow earned something from God or I did something particularly right. bad and he's punishing me, but but rather to use the language that Jesus talks about, say, in Luke 13, where, where he says, you know, you think they were worse sinners? No, no, don't think that. You just repent, lest you perish. Right. And and so the, the temporal consequences of my sin, when I experience whatever pain it may be, as the people of Judah experienced the pain of of the destruction of their home and exile in Babylon eventually, that all of that is a calling from God to repent. And again, I think that's where the words of Divine Service Setting 3 are so helpful. <laughs> Knowing right. what we deserve, that we do deserve that temporal and the eternal punishment. But thanks be to God, all of that ultimately has been put upon Christ. Well,
1: and that's the thing is, we, we almost—it'd be great—I'm <laughs> not inviting it. But in the times of Jeremiah, it's very blatant in your face. They're captives. A foreign nation has come and taken them. So you see very right in your face God doing something to you. It's almost like when someone gets uh, like gets cancer, it's hitting them right in the face that they live in a body that one day will stop while here. They, they see it. I think if we actually opened our eyes, we'd see a lot more of God calling us to repentance in daily life. But what we do is we've yet again, we've redefined everything. Mm. We've even redefined God's wrath. It's like, you know, it, it would be nice if the Turk just invaded. So then we could see God's wrath, right? That's what they called Attila. Even though he wasn't the Turk, he was on, you know, the scourge of God. Mm. This is God punishing us for our sins. This is God coming and doing this. Um, Even last year, when, when COVID came through, you had it, I don't think I heard any guy say it in that way. This is God punishing us for our sins. In fact, N.T. Wright, in his book on COVID, said you should never even use that terminology of God punishing you for your sin. He says it in his little, he wrote like a 110-page book on COVID. And in it, he, he said, not just with COVID, but with anything, it's never God doing anything to punish you or you having a temporal thing. That shouldn't be spoken of. And like you and I just spoke, you much more eloquently than I did. The temporal punishment is meant to save you from the eternal. It's meant to call you to repent. And when you see it that way, you rejoice. What is it? All things are good for those who love God. Not meaning God does good things because we love Him, but because we have been given the gift of faith and love God, we know even when punished, it's God doing it for our good. Um, but so many don't say that and it doesn't come from many pulpits.
0: And I I think, you know, there is a a note of caution that we do want to be careful about the way we speak, lest we speak where God has not spoken. So a a person who has received a diagnosis of cancer, that does not mean that God is punishing them in some sense. Mm. They are experiencing the effects of sin upon their body, but w- whether or not that was a sin that they committed, or that's not given for us to speculate. Right. Rather what is given to us is is to trust. And as you were talking, and I think you and I have, have quoted this hymn previously on on our time together, but Paul Gerhardt in his hymn, Why Should Cross and mm-hmm. Trial Grieve Me, I, I think just has a fantastic way of, of saying this, and it, it happens to be in poetry, which makes it rather memorable. Yeah. You know, he, he says, God gives me my days of gladness, and I will trust him still when he sends me sadness. God mm-hmm. is good. His love attends me day by day, come what may, guides me and defends me. And I right. find that I find that verse particularly helpful in this conversation because it, it is a reminder that behind whatever is happening to me in this life, God is good and he loves me. And the reason that I know that he is good and he loves me is precisely where we started this conversation, that all of that wrath that I deserved has been poured out upon his son Jesus Christ, such that when right. I receive these temporal consequences, whatever may be happening in the background, I can ultimately receive them from God's hand as something that He is using to keep me ultimately in the true faith to spare me from the wrath of on the last day. And I, again, I think that Gerhardt hymn is just a, it's 756 in Lutheran service book. It, oh, that's yeah. just one of the stanzas. It's it's all fantastic. And I really think it, it helps this whole conversation.
1: Oh, it does. Cause Gerhardt got it. You have all of his, almost all of his kids dead, his wife dead, a bunch of his parishioners dead. You have him being exiled from his church because he's faithful and doesn't want to be a Calvinist. I mean, it's amazing, but that's why Paul Gerhardt wrote better hymns than Amy Grant, you know? I mean, because of the suffering in the midst of the trials and tribulations, in the midst of the cross bearing, the heavier the cross, the sweeter the words. Mm -hmm. And that's our life in this time. That's one of my other favorite hymns is hymn 716, I walk in danger all the way. You're just a beautiful hymn that gets it, that this is my life while here, because sin, death, world, and the devil despise me. They hate my guts because I'm in Christ. So whatever God sends my way, he who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. Yeah. Thank God for that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, all of all of that is the, the confidence behind a, a hymn like Paul Gerhardt's. When we have a word like Jeremiah is given to take this cup of God's wrath and and make the nations drink it. And and I appreciate how you you brought up this is not just spoken to Judah and Jerusalem at this point. This is spoken to all the nations. And and we'll we'll get more of that in the text as Jeremiah actually names a lot of these nations. <clears throat> but it is a it is a reminder going all the way back to the call documents that Jeremiah received back in mm. chapter 1 where the Lord told him from the outset you are going to be a prophet to the nations that this word of God, which certainly goes to Judah and Jerusalem primarily, but it's not just for them. And, And so you get texts like this, which are very clearly talking to other nations. But even then the other texts that maybe say to Judah, to Jerusalem, it is a reminder that what God is doing there in Judah and Jerusalem, the word that he's speaking to those people and the things that he's doing among them, are ultimately not just for those people, but they are for all the nations and a text like this is a fantastic reminder of that
1: exactly i mean it's uh as it unfolds i know we've we've spent probably 20 30 minutes just talking about the first couple of verses but as it unfolds you see this beautiful where the place of god's wrath plays into all of this there's a reason god gives this word to be proclaimed Mm -hmm. and it all comes down to his eternal will
0: that's right, and and we've we've spent all this time on the first two verses because as we are going to continue, I'm going to have to say a lot of names, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce them correctly, but I'll do ah, my best. Ah, and I'm going to do why I'm glad that. You read the text instead that's of me. Right. We're going to do that on the other side of the break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to Pastor Chris Hall this morning. We're talking Jeremiah chapter 25. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 29th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 through 38 with Pastor Chris Hull. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, prior to the break, we looked at the first two verses here where Jeremiah is given the cup of the wine of wrath from the Lord's hand. Now he's going to take that cup, and he's going to continue now in verse 17 of our text. Jeremiah writes... So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse, as at this day, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and all the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. That was through verse 29 of Jeremiah chapter 15. So, Pastor Hall, Jeremiah takes the cup that he sees, and then he begins to list all the nations that the Lord wants to drink from this cup. And and I don't know that we need to comment on every single one, but there are a few things that stand out to me. First, that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah are listed first seems quite mm-hmm. appropriate given the, the book of Jeremiah and what he's been doing so far. It, it strikes me that it it's the opposite of the way, say, the prophet Amos preaches. When Amos opens up his book, he starts with all the surrounding nations before he kind of springs <laughs> his trap, and there's Israel and Judah listed among the, the transgressors at the very end. Jeremiah just puts it right out there at the beginning. Jerusalem and Judah, you guys are drinking this cup. He lists all all of these nations around in the, in the area— and then he closes—I think this is significant as well—he closes with the king of Babylon, and we know <clears throat> that, that Babylon is going to be the nation that's going to bring this wrath of the Lord. They're going to be the sword that the Lord sends, but even they too will not escape from the Lord's wrath. So this really is a a total judgment, and I think it. you, you mentioned Romans chapter 1 previously. I That was kind of what came into my mind, too, that the Lord's wrath falls upon all people— Because all have sinned. I'll let you, any comments on that section of nations that are listed to drink this (laughs) cup of wrath?
1: No, but I I think this is what can really help. Um, we, We like to say, oh, you can't really judge someone until you walk a mile in their shoes type thing. But the reality is here in Jeremiah, what's being said is it's not just those bad guys over there, but you as well. You have... Your heart has gone after other idols and gods. You've done this. So have they. They're going to get it. You're going to get this. Everyone is. You're not better than anybody else. You are my chosen. You are my people. Um, But you have not acted like it. You have acted like them. And therefore, you receive the same thing because you are corrupted by the same sin. All are sinful. All are poisoned by it. The snakes have bitten everybody, therefore the bronze serpent is for everybody.
0: Yeah, and, and so they're all going to drink from this cup, verse 27, after the list of these nations. Then Jeremiah is told to tell them all, drink it, drink this cup. And I, I think if I saw the cup, I probably wouldn't want to drink it either. And, and mm-hmm. Jeremiah is given words for that situation. And This really stands out to me in verse 28. The Lord tells Jeremiah, if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you need to tell them, the Lord says, you must drink. There's there's no way around someone drinking the cup of the Lord's wrath. And I, I mean, when I read verse 28, that's where my mind automatically goes to the way Christ approaches this cup in the Gospels. Well, exactly. You know, May this cup pass from me, but not my will, but
1: thy will be done. Someone has to drink the cup. And it's either Christ or it's you. It's not just going to sit there on the table. It has to be drunk. And Christ in our stead drinks it for us. He consumes the whole thing. There's not one drop left over. It's all gone. And there's not some left over for you. He has done it all for you. And when we don't trust in that, when we don't have faith in that, or when we think there's not wine that needs to be drunk, then we're going to drink it anyways, either here in time or, or in eternity. Mm. It will be drunk down one way or the other. Praise be to God, it's Christ who does it for us. Mm. And uh, the poison doesn't enter us. That's that blessed exchange, that joyful switch. Because of our sin, it has been put in us. But Christ has drained us. He's assumed all of the poison and drank it himself. And now in its place, we have just the righteousness of Christ. Mm.
0: Right. And, And again, thanks be to God that Christ drained the cup down to the dregs for us. You know, so when we, for example, when we hear him speak in the Gospels to his disciples, the Son of Man must be betrayed, delivered over, he must be killed and be raised. When he uses that language, I must do these things. This cup of the Lord's wrath from Jeremiah 15 is behind it. His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Again, this necessity of someone drinking this cup is behind that language. If he doesn't drink it, then we will. And if we drink it, that's where all of this wrath and these consequences that we've been talking about come upon us in fullness with absolutely no hope. But... When we trust in the one who has drunk the cup for us, then, and this is, I think we can make one more new, well, at least one more, maybe more New Testament connection, mm. is that the cup that we are given to drink suddenly becomes the cup of blessing. This is how St. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing, which, I mean, that's right—that's now what we receive because Christ has drained this cup of wrath for us.
1: Well, and that that's where it's the comfort, it's not an extra credit cup. Like, if you drink this, you'll be holier than other people. This is the cup that needs to be consumed so you don't perish. And that's the reality. It's not an extra credit for being a good person. Like, Israel, you get this cup because you're, you're special and can be better than other people. You're depraved just like everybody else is. And you need this. You need forgiveness. Well, even take what's the point of the divine services to be forgiven. I've had that argument with so many people, even within our beloved Missouri Senate, that the divine service is not primarily about you praising God but about you being forgiven and served by God. And when we get away from that, we get away from the understanding that the cup must be drunk. Drunk down, it must be consumed so that we may be filled with absolution.
0: Right? And that and that is what the Lord fills that cup of blessing with, the the blessing of the forgiveness of sins that is in the cup of Christ's blood, the cup of blessing shed for you and for me. That's what we receive instead of the cup of wrath when we are in him. But when we are not in him, all that there is is this cup of wrath that Jeremiah is speaking of. In these last couple verses then of of this section before we move to a more poetic section of preaching from Jeremiah, another thing that stands out in verse 29 where the Lord says, behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, that that being called by God's name, I'm reminded of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be mm-hmm. thy name. And and it <clears throat> seems that, well, it doesn't seem, the people of Jerusalem and Judah were not praying that petition, God's going to make his name holy one way or the other, we should pray that it happens among us. Well, Exactly. When,
1: when we look at what it means to keep God's name holy, it is the preaching of his name, the preaching of his word in its fullness. And let us repent quickly when that doesn't happen, lest we get the sword that comes upon us. <laughs> I think I said it in a sermon one day, God help us if the Turk comes over the hill. We're done for because there's not much that we've actually clung to right now. In our fatness we don't treasure what is priceless, but instead those things that are trinkets at the market that you pay twenty bucks for that break on the flight home.
0: Well, I think that I mean this really adds urgency to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, you know, in the in the catechism, we the Luther Luther tells us that, you know, how is God's name kept holy? And when he talks about what doesn't have you know when it's not when it's profaned anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word and then this is the the petition where he adds that prayer in the middle of the explanation mm-hmm. you know, protect us from protect this us. heavenly father and yes. and a, you know a text like this from Jeremiah 15 I think adds the urgency to such a petition. Why is it so important that God's name would be holy among us? So that we would be protected from all of this, it, including, again, those those temporal punishments as well, and especially those eternal punishments, the holiness of God's name among us. Well, there's a reason that that's the first thing that Jesus gives us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Right. That that comes before the fourth petition. So often we pray yes. for fourth petition things, and that's <clears throat> good. We should pray for fourth petition things, the needs of this body. But let's never forget to pray for the holiness of God's name because that's where it starts.
1: Well, and that's the reason it's the fourth and not the first one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 layered for in a certain way for a reason. Mm-hmm. And um Yeah. We could talk about that all day.
0: We sure could. We should probably talk about the rest of <laughs> Jeremiah 25, though. <laughs> and it could come back up, knowing, knowing the really Lord sure likes will. to repeat himself. So let's take the rest of the chapter. This is Jeremiah 25, now beginning at verse 30. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold. And shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste to their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. That's the rest of our text. Mm. Uh, that's, thanks be to that's God. That's bedtime reading, bedtime reading. Fun times, Pastor Hull. Indeed. That was the end of the, the chapter, verses 30 to 38. Pastor Hall, we get some fantastic imagery from Jeremiah as, as we do throughout his book. The first image that he gives us, and this happens more than once, is the Lord as a lion. The Lord roars from on high. Uh, the prophet Amos very famously uses a mm-hmm. similar image of the Lord roaring. Why in this context? Why is it important that the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all the nations know that the Lord is the one roaring as a lion from on high?
1: what's well, the authority that comes with it i mean we as- we associate a lion's roar with such authority because we see what a lion can do what it does there's a reason when you go to the zoo they don't let you walk into the pit and sit with the lions you're not going to make it out it doesn't happen when we look at this lion roaring you don't make it out unless he wants to have mercy on you that's why I love Lewis, why he chooses Aslan to be a lion. Mm-hmm. Now, the lion, I mean, it can be defeated by another animal, <laughs> but the lion with its roar, its mane, its teeth. We look at it and remember the children ask, is he safe? And the gover says, no, he's silly. It's a, it's a lion, but he's good. And what he's doing is good. And that's what we have comfort in is in the goodness of that voice. The voice lays waste to those things that are wicked, that are bad, that are, are wrong for us. It's not anger. It is a is a love is why this roar happens, that the waste is laid upon the earth. I mean, ah, oh, when, when we look at this happening, we can sit here and say, well, God, God's a, an, a, a bad God, a mean God, a good God would never do this to us. Well, a good parent doesn't let their child eat a gallon of ice cream in the morning. You know, a good parent doesn't say, well, just eat the leftover pizza that we left out last night on the stove. No, the the good parent gives you something you don't like. The parent doesn't argue with you. They just say, eat your vegetables. They don't try to tell you how much iron is in the broccoli. They just say, eat it. It's good for you. And these things that God does with his great voice is good for us. And that roar wakes us up to it. Because when you hear the roar of a lion, it also gets your attention. It causes you to stop and pay attention to whatever's coming from that voice.
0: Which is certainly what the people of Judah and Jerusalem needed. I think the other thing that stands out about the roar of the lion for for me in the context of Jeremiah is all of the false prophets that Jeremiah had to deal with. You know, how many <clears> other <throat> voices were there out there? Maybe we can mm-hmm. call them little cats meowing that there ah! were so many of them that, that the people, they really enjoyed that sweet little sound. And so the Lord needs to come and roar to them. So, I mean, as a reminder, you you can't shut him up. He's going to talk to you and you better pay attention because all these false prophets, they may sound great, but what they have is no good. What they have will only leave you with nothing to drink but the cup of the Lord's wrath. And so the Lord roars at you like you said, to get your attention so that you can't drown him out. He wants you to hear him. And, and that image of, of the parent, I think, is a very helpful one. Because what's what's perhaps most frightening would be if the parent were to simply say nothing. And, and that's when you yeah. know that, that there is no love there. But as long right. as the parent is speaking, as long as the lion is roaring, you know that he loves you because he's trying to call you back from the danger.
1: Right. Right. And that's the beauty of this. It's, um, I was reminded when you, when you mentioned God's voice will be heard. There was a small interview with Christopher Hitchens. It was like a behind-the-scenes video after he had just debated a, a prominent Christian theologian. You know, Hitchens, a prominent atheist, died a few years ago from lung cancer. And um, he, he was asked the question, if you could wish it, would you wish for all re- all Christianity to be gone? like just not, not to exist. It's gone. And he said, I could wish it, but it would never happen. And it, it was interesting. In and he then says, because you can't silence the voice of these Christians. So when we look at God speaking, it can't be silenced. You see, Jesus says it right from the stones. They'll start crying out. John the Baptist, God will raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. God will work. You can't wish him to be quiet. He will speak. And most of the time he will say something you don't want to hear, but he also says things you need to hear. That's what I love about John 10. He's not, we call him the good shepherd, but that Kalos word means it's the needed shepherd, the right shepherd, the one you need right now. That's who God is for you, is the one you need him to be. And it's the God that saves you.
0: With that, that language of shepherd, let's let's pick that up, because we have that language here in this text, in verses 34 and following, the Lord speaks woe against the shepherds. So the, the leaders of the people, you know, wail, you shepherds, cry out, your slaughter is coming, your flocks will be dispersed, it's your voice that's going to be crying and wailing, there's not going to be any refuge for you, nor any refuge for your folds. I think, I mean, all of that language does invite us to look to the good, the needed shepherd as ultimately the one who is our only refuge. Because these these shepherds, and we know that, you know, the, the kings of Judah at this time are very faithless, other than Josiah, who reigns for a while at the beginning of Jeremiah's mm-hmm. ministry. The kings who follow him are faithless. You've got prophets who are telling lies. You've got priests who are just supporting the prophets who are telling lies. You've got court officials who are just upholding the you know this this sort of sham government and the false theology that's everywhere all these shepherds they're not going to give you the refuge that they need or that you need they're going to fail ultimately it's only the good shepherd he must be the one to shepherd his flock
1: and that's the beautiful part you get that in Ezekiel as well I myself I will do this I will shepherd and why do we cling to these false ones Hmm. is because they give us a a, a little something right now, something we can look at that gives us a temporary fix, but they don't offer any lasting. I was just discussing this with uh, my associate and I said, you know, the reality of the widow's mites, it's beautiful when it says she gave out of her nothingness. I said, the other reality of this is, Money is nothing to her. She doesn't have it. It can't do anything for her. It's hard to tithe when money does things for you. It's hard to tithe when that God does make you happy, at least temporarily, when it buys you things like boats and trucks, guns, books, movies, houses, foods, half of it you throw away anyways, you know, that reality it makes you feel like you're being helped and, and rescued. But in the end, it, it's, it's nothing. And when you cling to it, it doesn't go with you. Only Christ and his love. And this is why we need to be in the word more. And what I mean, be in the word more is literally be talking about the word more together. Let's spend time at church more. I would, I would pray I never let my sons or daughter participate in any extracurricular activities except going to church and being in God's word. Well, don't you want them to swim and play baseball or football or gymnastics or being a ballerina? Why? Why is that so important? Because the world has made it important. It is not important in the eyes of God. It's nothing. But we've made it so important. I'm a loving parent if I'm an Uber for my children's activities. But if I don't Uber them to church, then I'm useless and I'm a terrible parent. I don't love my kids. If I don't take them to church. Oh God, that was a bad statement, wasn't it? Do you want to erase that one?
0: No, no, not at all. I, I think you But know- why I say it
1: is you say stuff very profound on Facebook when you talk about, you know, summertime and things like this. But the, the the reality is very simply this there is a cup you will drink, and your kid can't hit enough home runs to drain it. You can't put enough miles on your car going places. It doesn't matter. And the pastor who preaches it, well, I don't like what he preaches. I'm going to go to the church that meows at me instead of roars at me. I like that image because mm-hmm. no one really gets it. No one's scared of a little kitty cat. Now I am because I'm allergic to cats. Um, so I hear a meow. I run away. <laughs> but the the reality is when we look at this, true love is love that I, I desire you. What I was talking with um. A pastor's wife uh, the other day, not a pastor, a sister in Christ. Pastor's wife makes it like it's some subcategory. about a sister in Christ, about who my children will date. And people say, well, you can't determine that. It's like, well, I can tell them who to date, what's important. If they start dating someone who doesn't believe in Christ, don't go out with them. Don't date them. Don't do it. If that's low on the totem pole for you, besides the color of hair, what car they drive, and what their favorite hobbies are, if they don't believe in Christ and go to church, don't date them. Why are you doing that? What's the driving force? That is a false shepherd, is a false flock. And it's not going to end at anything except wrath and punishment.
0: Yeah. But well, and that's where that's it, fun. the wrath and punishment, I mean, it comes <laughs> back up here at the text. We have a bit of a bookend at the end in verse 38. This is all because of his, the Lord's, fierce anger. And, I'm, yeah. you know, we were talking at the toward the beginning about the necessity of continuing to use that language of speaking of the Lord's wrath and anger, and particularly here at the end of the text when you see just what the wrath of the Lord does, what his anger does, and how it absolutely brings disaster on anything and everything. I mean, you know, disaster going for, forth from nation to nation, judgment with all flesh— from the farthest parts of the earth, there is nothing that will escape God's wrath, except, except those who are in Christ, those who find themselves in the one who drains the cup on their behalf. That is the only refuge that there is from the wrath of the Lord. And so to see a picture like this, where even the shepherds, the, the people who were promising peace, peace— To see them fall as well is a necessary thing. To see how all these idols cannot save us, how they too will be burned up by the wrath of the Lord, we have to see that so that we would put our trust in the only one who can save us, who has saved us from the wrath of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, who drains the cup on our behalf to give us the cup of blessing. Pastor Hall, we got three minutes to wrap things up this morning.
1: The wrath of God is over us. We can't debate this. We see it in our temporal life. We hear of its consequences unto eternity. We can't satisfy it. We can't do enough good works to outweigh it. We can't ignore it. We can't run away from it. All we can do is despair of ourself and say, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this sorrow? Our Lord Christ does. Christ came and has God's anger stilled. He has come and taken all of our sin that causes God to have wrath on us and said, it's mine. I bear it. I deal with it. I take responsibility for it and I will pay the price for it. The debt is paid. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. You and God are good. Now you are reconciled. You are at one with your father in heaven because Christ has done all things well for you. So may the Holy Spirit fill our mouths with this good news, that Jesus has done it. He's done all things well for us. The work is finished. We are forgiven. We are loved by God because of Jesus. May that be so redundant we get tired of it because of Jesus, because of Jesus. It's all him. He's done it for you. He delights in you, and he is never going to change his mind. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So be at peace, everybody. Jesus has done it. The cup of wrath is empty. The cup of blessing overflowing for you. Praise the Lord for that.
0: Pastor Chris Hall is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 to 38. Pastor Hall, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Always a pleasure, Brother Apple. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the Book of Jeremiah, comments on our series, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Use the app. The open mic feature is there for you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.